everyone. In this episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley, we're going to go old school. 150 years worth of it. Yup. We're going to cover 150 years in 20 minutes. Well, we're going to cover more than that, I guess, because we're talking about stuff that's older than 150 years. I guess you're right. But we're also not going to do that because we know how bad that would be. So before you all like rage quit listening to us, we're going to be talking about the Winchester 150th Wait, no. The Winchester Arms Collection, 150th anniversary. Wow, I'm terrible at this today. <laughs> I like that, like, <laughs> I like that I we had to record this multiple times for me to get the intro. And then you, who has scheduled and, like, been the mastermind of the 150th collection, like, party, celebration, uh, just couldn't even figure out what you were doing. Before we get into, like, the full episode, can I sidebar for a second about why has this anniversary fallen to me? I have a history going back to my terrible nerdy high school days of planning only tragic parties. And I've never been able to correct that. And it's up to me to plan 150th anniversary of the collection. I have a very short answer for that. You're the freaking curator. That's like literally your job. <laughs> I mean, touche. Are you planning or not? But I've always sucked at planning parties. And this is like... It's, this is, I don't know. It's a terrible situation. I hate planning things. How many people came to your party? I don't know. We had like 20 or 30 staff. Oh, there you go. That's like, well, there's cake, but that's fine. All right. So we've talked about the Winchester Arms Collection a lot. So we're not really going to focus on like the history of the collection other than to say it's 150 years old. And that is in reference to a letter from 1871 that Oliver Winchester sent to um, R.S. Lawrence asking for a Jennings rifle for his collection. Now, in theory, then that means the collection existed more than 150 years ago because he referenced a collection. Right. And Winchester definitely had like personal guns, you know, because we have like named some were like signed guns that were made before 1871. Others are ones that we know he had made for him before 1871, like the Paris shotgun. Um, but that's like the first formal documentation of a collection. Exactly. So what we thought we'd focus on, because we always say, you know, we always say the Winchester Arms Collection is more than just Winchesters. It's Winchester's competitors. It's pre-Winchesters. It's historic guns. It's, you know, machine guns pre-1970s. And uh, so we thought we'd take some time to focus on the actual, like, things in the collection that you wouldn't expect to be there. And a couple... So do you want to take the first one? Yeah, I'll take the first one. And I think we're also going to touch on a couple of, like, just really random stories of how things <laughs> got to be in a lever action, a company famous for lever actions, how it got in their collection. I like that we made a list of things we were going to talk about right before this, this podcast. And you just, and we did not mention that gun, but you just, you just barreled right ahead and threw it in there. Anyways, I'll, I'll go back to the list and start with one of the weirder things in the collection. And it, it is, well, it's actually, I think it's considered a firearm, not like eight separate things, um, but it's an organ gun. Oh, like how many barrels? <laughs> it's got like eight or 10 barrels on it. Um, it's got, yeah, it's got a lot of little mini barrels, but that's like, it's one solid firearm. Right. Uh, solid might be. Gun, it, gun. It's, it's gun. I mean, it's portable. You can pick it up. It might crack in half. <laughs> it's some amount of gun. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, so for those of you not picturing what we're 
being terrible at describing. It's basically a long four by four with, um, I can't remember now, but eight or 10 simple iron barrels just like jammed into this hunk of wood. And then there's a channel cut out along the top of it. So you load all your powder and projectiles into each barrel. And then the channel has flash holes into those barrels. So then you pour a row of gunpowder or a line of gunpowder, um, light one end and it lights all the, in theory, lights all the individual barrels to fire in a volley. Um, and the other thing that like is weird about it is like the barrels are super tiny. Yeah. They're like four inches at most. Yeah. So like, I don't know what kind of range or accuracy you're it's, getting with that. It's a PDW yeah, smooth, right? organ gun for sure. Yeah. Um, it's a very weird, weird gun um, in the collection, and it may be tied to a actual famous collection, and that collection is now escaping me. I but think it's it, in it, Austria, it, right? Yeah. Um, but basically, the the curator of the Art Institute of Chicago was here for one of our symposia, and he was like. I know that one. I saw it in an auction catalog, you know, years ago, um, or, or the mate of it in an auction catalog. He goes, I think that it was actually a part of some like rich nobility or royalties collection um, at a famous castle that I can't remember. Um, but it, it was kind of cool because it's like uh, Winchester wasn't always the greatest at maintaining like what it was or what it you know wasn't and, and this is fair to say I, I think this is a pugsley gun yeah i think like most of the things we're going to talk about are pugsley collection which is a part of the winchester right. collection um yeah i think this is fair to assume was probably a pugsley purchase first um and then came into the winchester collection and but not all but we assume that about a lot of our really old guns because like well why was winchester wasn't always collecting it makes sense that they were collecting sort of their in-house designs, their competitors' designs. But it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to, coll to collect older than that. But it appears that they did anyways. Um, so I don't know if like this company had this great sense of history passed down to them from Oliver Winchester or just like one of those things, weird happenstances of history. Um, but that one we think is Pugsley. The next gun we want to talk about was definitely a Winchester sales agent just like bought this randomly and brought it back with him. And that's the four barrel Chinese hand cannon, maybe Chinese hand cannon. Yeah, I remember the first label in the old museum was like, what was it? It was like possibly China or, or Europe. <laughs> yeah, it was like it was like all these like it was like a string of caveats that like none of them went together. And you're just like, that's a disaster. Yeah. And it was like, maybe, you know, 1500s, maybe not like it was, it's so ambiguous. And I remember um, the former curator, former curator, like multiple curators ago, he used to be like, and then we had it radiocarbon dated. And I was like, I don't think that's no, true. That was if it's the curator. <laughs> like a I think, lot of effort for Winchester to go to. If it's the curator that I believe you are talking about, then it's definitely not true that we had that radiocarbon dated. Definitely not true. Um, but this hand cannon's cool to us because we actually have a couple of hand cannons in the collection. Um, but it's also, I should like say that they're not as cool as the one in the Smithsonian collection, but the one in the Smithsonian collection is like way big. And these are really small um, hand cannons, but it shows you that the, the concept of wanting repeating technology um, or more bang for your buck. 
uh, you know, existed really, really early on, you know, so it's not just something that says, you know, we could only have one barrel. It's like we could have multiple barrels. Although, you know, as we always used to say in our tours, like, I don't know if you want to be holding that thing. <laughs> I don't know which is worse, holding it. Um, and well, actually that holding it's probably the worst, but when we did fire the single barrel hand cannon, uh, which has similar construction uh, as we were working on the renovation of the museum, it was surprisingly not as horrible as we thought it was going to be. Yeah, that one, it was definitely scary to fire the first time, but it was pretty fun after that because it wasn't, it wasn't bad. Yeah. Um, so that, hand oh, sorry. I was just going to say, and that hand cannon, the story goes that in sometime in the 1920s, a Winchester sales agent purchased it in china whether it was made in china or was like made somewhere in europe and traded to china we've heard different opinions on we've also heard opinions that it's just a like later reproduction some people think it's legit it's it's all over the place but it's representative of the type and definitely was a winchester collected item which is pretty neat regardless of what it actually is and then the other if we're talking about weird how we how winchester got collections guns um oh my god and i just remembered one more that we have to talk about uh but i i was going to say the king louis the 13th wheel lock um which is big wall gun um or hunting gun with a stick <laughs> or as like some people allege like that king louis the 13th would just put it on somebody's shoulder but we cannot corroborate if that was true but we did put it on did. on my shoulder didn't we yes i stood at the i held the stock and then you were the firing rest <laughs> it went well it went. Uh, but this has got a cool story because the first known slash true gun collector was king louis the 13th of france or is believed to be king louis the 13th of france and um, he grew up spending a lot of time with the royal gun maker uh, the royal gunsmith and he was really fascinated with like advanced technology for the time and he knew how to make guns himself and he collected them and then what was it like after he died it got broken up and then napoleon helped to reunite it right I think that might have been like yeah. the only good thing William did. <laughs> and so, some, I think uh, the curators over at the Met have talked to me about this. There's, I'm, there's a known inventory of his collection. I think. And what's well, you know, and, and the funny part of like the win, like, you know, the Winchester collection is when you like learn the story about the collection getting broken up and then reunited in France. You know, that always has this like footnote that says, but some of the collections, you know, some of the collection items made it to America and never made it back, and like that's one of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We were um, and if I if I may interject, since you are going to talk about the Hatfield McCoy's gun, we should also talk about um, the 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 Roland wheel lock, the um, possibly oh yeah you know only signed English wheel lock in the country, or one of the few that has survived in the condition that did you hear me? I said like so many qualifiers well, to yeah. it. it. That was funny, but I was also thinking when we were talking about the Chinese hand cannon, I was trying to pull up the date for it like on the side here. And the only thing I pulled up is something we skipped and we didn't talk about what is really weird, but the oldest thing that Winchester collected as the Chinese crossbow lock, which <laughs> might yeah. be a BC crossbow lock, which is cool. Um, that is cool. And I, we're both thinking of additional things that weren't on the list we wrote down. So we're doing awesome because the, do you remember the PIM revolver? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Why don't you do that? And I'm gonna pull up the actual history of the the rolling wheel lock because yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, that's. A... Um, I should have it somewhere um, in our renovation files because Herb wrote the whole history for it. Right. So the PIM revolver that I referred to is a Snap Hands revolver that is alleged to have been made by a gunmaker named J. Pym, um, usually spelled just J period P-I-M of Boston in the late 1600s. So if it's a legit gun, it's a very, very cool piece of like an early revolving firearm. The problem is, is that Herb, our previous curator, he believed through and through that it was a fake, that it had been made later to look old. And a few other people have alleged that it's fake. However, it wasn't always believed so. And this is something that I don't think I've told you about, Ashley. But the other the other week when I was researching for the 150th anniversary as like a whole, just like history of the museum, in Tom Hall's files is all this provenance about the PIM revolver being legit. So Tom Hall, the original curator of the Winchester Museum in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, he believed that to be a legit revolver. And he had all this documentation about who Pym was and like why the gun was good. So it was like, you know, these two greats of this collection's history, like Herb and Tom, um, have a disagreeing stance on whether the gun is real. So it was, it was interesting to see that there was actual some provenance for the other side of the argument. So that's really cool. And I didn't know that about the PIM, like the recent stuff about the PIM. Um, okay, so I pulled up the label. And of course, because of word count, it's a lot shorter. So I don't have all of the names, but it's good enough. Um, so it says, this is one of the only signed English wheel locks that have survived to present. This hunting rifle was made by Robert Rowland between 1704 and 1722. 40 years after manufacture, it was acquired by David Martin, a court painter to the Prince of Wales, later known as King George IV of Great Britain. After Martin's death, the rifle was sold to Thomas Gwynapp, who displayed it in his museum. In the 20th century, it exchanged hand th hands through a series of prominent estates. So it, it, it pops over to America. There's like this period of time where you like don't have anything for it and then it goes from famous estate to famous estate until winchester buys it which i think is really or i think pugsley buys it actually um but then i also want to point out that because i pulled that label up the label right below it is the organ gun and it was um it is believed to be from the fortress of hohenwerfen Ooh, say that 10 times fast um hohenwerfen okay anyways um do you want to talk about how yeah, i'll talk about that one i my follow-up thought is the Roland Wheelock. We've been told by several people in the know, like I don't know early guns super well, like that's not my area of expertise, but we have been told by several people that would know that it is the only signed one in the US, which is cool. And I'm kind of curious. I want to see that museum that it was in before it came to our museum. It was a private like collector. But that museum. goes into like our whole history of museums thing. And like, I want to time travel to their 18th century Billy Bob's garage museum. <laughs> Where they have a signed <laughs> So exactly. another one of the weird guns in the collection, and we don't really display it as this because there's no good provenance to back it up, but there is a Henry rifle in the collection. And by, you know, we talked about the early days, like Winchester, Oliver Winchester himself collected for his personal interests. The company clearly collected like competitors products. And this seems they sort of slowly expanded out so that like sales agents in China had permission to buy stuff and bring it back. Um, 
but then by like the 40s and 50s they were buying a decent amount of like interesting guns they found and one of them was a reported um family descendant and i'll have to look up his name but um it's a henry rifle and it's it's a nice original henry like it's in good shape it's in original condition so like that's a positive for it but the guy winchester bought it from uh alleged that it was part of the hatfield mccoy feud which is really interesting and winchester thought enough of the connection to buy the gun and they would do the same that where they would either buy a gun and they would pay you know the going rate for an old henry which wasn't a lot back then or they would often trade like a brand new 94 for like some historic piece that they wanted for the collection so they were just like imagine i mean i think a lot of our audience probably at least collects a little bit and is familiar with like trading up or trying to trade up in like with the guns but imagine being a firearms manufacturer and then just being like trading new guns for old ones all the time like is that not the greatest like trade situation like anytime you want you have a new gun ready to trade for what you want well, and I think it's, um, I, I should make the point, and this is a little bit like sketch part of Winchester collection history, is that like there were lots of things in the collection that like were like, pot, were well, they were sold off. I mean, they were um, auctioned off. They were, you know, and so there were some like really cool things that like allegedly like we had and the provenance was good and then like, you know, was sold off. Um, but then there was also that agreement with Norm Flaterman. And the moment that Danny and I like just like died inside was we've got that um, pr- that that 1911 cutaway that Colt sent to Winchester when they got a contract to make some 1911s. And allegedly they made, you know, some of those 1911s. And like one day we were just like looking at Flaterman's cover. I think it was the last Flaterman's cover. I have it right here. And um there they are. Yeah. And they got their Winchester There they tags. are. Winchester tags on Winchester 1911s. Uh, because he appraised the collection and wasn't it like right. his payment was he Which like got gone. It was fairly common. And this was back when the collection was still in Winchester's hands. But he, Flaterman appraised the collection. And as many times happens in the gun world, he asked for guns in exchange for like a cash payment. And the guns he picked out were the Winchester um 1911 handgun frames and parts from their canceled contract for the handgun uh in world war one and so they became part of the flaterman collection um and it's it's you know it it was a it was a deal that the company made and thought was fair so i can't you know that was their call not mine but it it is a little bit tough to see that those really interesting pieces are um you know they're not they're they're tucked away somewhere i don't know where they're at now well because well, they sold right. his collection off so somebody has it in private hands also i'm looking and it's like there's also letters here that i never like tried to read part of it and so it's just kind of funny um you know how like we look at this book and didn't realize it and then one day was like yeah. no <laughs> so i pulled up the, uh, um, the inventory note for the henry rifle so this is from winchester did an invent they had like a little inventory cards they kept about the collection and that's been compiled into a book. Um, and so it is for that entry in the book, it is Henry Rifle reported to have been owned by Cap Hatfield of Hatfield and McCoy fame. Um, gives a serial number, caliber, has old leather slings still attached. This rifle was presented to the collection by Mr. Norman Webster, 3 Close Avenue, Toronto, Canada, had been given to his brother Ed 
by Cap Hatfield of Virginia or West Virginia about 1905, received at WRA Co. 1952. So it's one of the, I mean, nowadays, like looking back, we hear those kind of stories all the time. Like people call us about some famous outlaw's gun and it's like, well, this, you know, whoever gave this gun to my granddad and then it got passed down to the family. That's a very common story. Um, so, and you have to always take them with a grain of salt, but Winchester believed this guy enough to take it in the collection. And it looks like I was incorrect. It wasn't purchased. They just said presented because they normally specified when they did pay for something. Yeah. Um, okay. So we got to keep on rolling because this ended up being yeah, way yeah, longer yeah. than we anticipated. Um, so like a couple of earlier things that ended up being featured um, together, actually, um, in the old museum um, is the Emden mm-hmm. Matchlock which is like a German, German, I don't know enough about European history to know when it's Germany and not Germany. Um, and then a crossbow, a big old crossbow. One thing you have to wind up. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the crossbow? I'll talk do. about the Emden gun. I don't remember anything about the crossbow, but I bet you I okay, can well, find I'll it. I'll stall for you by talking about the Emden musket. So uh, the city of Emden, and when this musket was made, I think it was just like a city state. So it's not really German or Dutch or whatever. It's just Emden. But the matchlock, it's a matchlock musket and is part of a group that were known to have been um, made for the city of Emden and kept in the city's sort of arsenal um, for a long time, of course, until they're obsolete. And then they were part of sort of this city's like armory and that turned into a museum. And this this collection was, of course, you know, in the path of World War II. And I think the the museum suffered a bomb strike, I think, during the war um, in a bombing raid. And then, of course, the collection gets broken up, um, probably in part due to some um, GIs with sticky fingers. And some of those guns come to the States. And then this gun ultimately ends up in the Winchester collection and you know that becomes our collection and it's this really great you know period matchlock in um good shape and it's a great uh it's like a great example of the type of matchlock musket but it's this weird connection to what was somebody else's collection that came back during the war yeah um here's what i found on the crossbow it's old it's old moving on moving on we do have that Confederate collection that came from another person's collection, but we don't have to get into that because we're running. We'll do the 30 second version. Okay. 30 second version. So Edwin Pugsley was a, he was a collector from a very young age. And one of the first stories as he told it uh, about his collecting life was meeting a shopkeeper in like their back room of, I think there's some implication that the shop was like a, the kind of place that a young man of society wasn't supposed to be seen. So I don't know if it was like a liquor store or what, but anyway, the shopkeeper knew a widow of a civil war general, the civil war general had collected Confederate arms while he was like a, um, you know, he was, uh, like a military governor of some region in the South collected all these guns up. His widow then sold them through the shopkeeper and Edwin Pugsley heard about this in the advertisement and was really interested as he just got into gun collecting and went over there and like bought the whole collection. 
And we think that's where most of our Confederate arms come from. And that just made me think about when we won't go into it, because I think we've talked about it before. And if not, we can talk about collections of collections in another video is Eli Whitney Jr.'s collection. So we also have, you know, several personal firearms, um, ones that were never even made, like that little pistol, um, you know, that came from Eli Whitney Jr. And I, I we have the video somewhere of Herb talking about it, but I think it was like, uh, like someone who married into the family was just like really into like spending money on like boats and <laughs> boats and houses. <laughs> nice. But it's true. And so like he ended up selling the collection to Pugsley and it ended up being uh, <laughs> and, the Winchester collection. And I think Pugsley never said that the Civil War general was Benjamin Butler, but another... Uh, a number of other people have alleged that the collection that he bought was the Butler collection. Um, and then now before we pop into just kind of talking about the more modern guns in the collection that you might not expect, uh, Danny last week cut a cake with an artifact. I did cut a cake with an artifact. I got special dispensation and everything. It um, still got, you know, some grumblers. So there's always grumblers. People like, this is my life lesson for y'all today. People are just going to chirp and whatever. <laughs> People just going to chirp. <laughs> um, so if you take nothing away, that's 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 Danny's life lesson corner. Um, so yeah, we in the in the records of the company is this really amazing photo of Tom Hall and Ed Pugsley and two other guys that I can't remember their names right now, but they're like the company CEOs at the time. And when they opened up the gun museum, like every year they had like an anniversary of the opening of the museum and they would have a cake and like a reception and they would cut the cake with a sword. And at first glance, it's like, oh, that's cool. They had a sword in the collection and they cut the cake. But it turns out if you look closely at the photo, you can tell it's not a sword. It's actually a very distinctive French bayonet, which we still have in the collection. So we, since it's the 150th anniversary, we decided to have a little party uh, that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast to mark that occasion. So I had our, the, the center chef cook up a cake. Um, and we took the sword out of the collection and I talked to the conservators, like, could we even do such a thing? Cause museums as a rule are super against using artifacts at all. Um, but we got a special exception, told her what we wanted to do. We cut the cake. She immediately treated the artifact so that it was nice and safe. And ironically, I wore gloves as I was cutting a cake. Like I wore. And you wore cotton gloves, like it's Mickey Mouse. Nice. Um, so we cut the cake and marked the occasion and had a lot of fun with it to try and recreate that photo. But the, the sword slash bayonet goes to a super obscure French bolt action musketoon thing. Um, and do you want to tell the apocryphal story about those guns? Oh, um, it, it had something to do with the fact it's like, understand that this thing is ridiculous there's a picture of me like looking up at it um so there yeah, was, when like, when on the gun it's like eight feet long yeah it's crazy and um so one of the the stories is that like essentially like i don't remember what napoleon's role was but um uh, but basically uh that they believe they they stopped using them because they would like hit the roof uh, or the ceiling of the like palace or whatever like um with the bayonets and so that like made a bunch of holes but then as danny and i thought that through we were like <laughs> like these grandiose buildings wouldn't have eight foot ceilings they would probably have way more than that <laughs> and like if you've made it through all of your like imperial guard training 
I imagine at some point people like, let's say, let's say this is actually the cause of this. Someone salutes once, sticks a bayonet in the ceiling, like, hey, we're going to come up with a new procedure for this. Yeah. <laughs> we're not stupid. We're not going to look like idiots in front of the emperor all the time. And it's Napoleon, just for clarity's sake, it's Napoleon the third, yeah. not Napoleon the Napoleon. Because that you could also, we should spread another conspiracy theory that the Napoleon Napoleon uh, hated it because it was taller than him. Well, obviously, all the he had all the palaces shortened ceilings to make him look taller. And then as an after effect, the guards were stabbing the ceilings with these long. That is historically accurate. That's the story. That's 100 percent true. 100 percent. So let's jump forward in history and end on just like we're going to end on like a great story that Danny just well, Danny just talked about. But I think I post. Yeah. So we posted about it, um, but it's it's worth repeating. And it's it kind of contradicts an earlier story. And it it's based on why do we have all these military, like World War One, World War II, we have some really great machine guns in the collection. And it's like, why was Winchester collecting that? And it's like, well, you know, they were working with the US government. Maybe some of it came from there, like whatever. But one of them is our Villar Perosa. And intact villars are pretty rare guns nowadays. There's a handful of museums that I can find. Um, there's a couple on the private market, but rare, rare guns. And so I was like, why did we get one? And the old version of the story involved some illegal activity and was told as uh, like sometime, um, I think sometime in the 80s is when it was alleged to happen, happened uh, that a Winchester executive flew over to Italy, Italy, got this gun out of some collection over there for an unknown reason and was on a private plane and just flew the gun back. And since they're on a private plane, they just land wherever they want and they don't have to tell nobody about the gun. <laughs> so an illegal importation of a machine gun essentially was the old story about this gun. Uh, but the, the, the story that Danny tracked down in a letter was essentially that they were given uh, they were given the Villa Perosa for fulfilling an order. Winchester was given the Villa Perosa Villar Perosa uh, <laughs> for fulfilling an order of their weird ass nine millimeter that they <laughs> had go with it. Um, but the, the I think the most I- interesting part of that conversation is the fact that they registered it during the 1968 amnesty, which is the only right. amnesty that's ever happened since the 1934 National Firearms Act. And why is that weird, Danny? Why is that weird? Well, because so the Olin family owned Western Cartridge Company, who, as Ashley said, got a contract for 50 million weird-ass 9 mil rounds, otherwise known as 9mm Glacinti. <laughs> we prefer the 9mm WA. <laughs> WA. Um, so they've completed the contract, and apparently the gun they were given was like a test gun used to test their ammo, and it was given to John Olin. Olin family buys Winchester. The gun, The gun doesn't come to the collection right away. In the 30s, right after Olin buys Winchester, the NFA is passed, which makes that the Villar Perosa should have been registered then. So I guess it just sits in Olin's closet or safe for 34 more years until 1968 when he registers it during the amnesty. And then a few years later, when he... Um, he decides to, when the collection's coming out to Cody, he decides to give it to the museum collection so that it can be out here. And we have sort of the letters back and forth describing that. And there's actually a bit of a mix up. So like 
there was the shipment that was supposed to come and it gets in Cody and there's like this back and forth. Is it there? Is it in New Haven? Like who has it? What's going on? And they're like writing to each other and they finally figure out who has it. And then they like, then they put it on like the company jet and fly it out here. So that was the, that was where the jet got involved. Yeah. Um, and I just, I'm going to pull a Danny here for one second and we don't have to get into it, but I just thought we, I should point out that uh, we're talking about weird. How did we end up with it? The Jansen EM2, like Jansen's personal EM2 oh, right. with, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the actual like testing notes and everything. Right. I mean, I like, I guess the reality of the matter is, is that there's just so much good stuff in that Winchester collection that has nothing to do. Well, I guess Jansen came back and like worked with, you know. Winchester, right. but like that seemingly if you're not up on your weird Winchester history, like hasn't like makes no sense. Um, you know, we had that Bannerman Gatling too that we didn't, you know, talk right. about that, that was then a prototype minigun. Uh well, not minigun, but Vulcan, <laughs> pre-Vulcan Vulcan. Um, and so like it just never ends. And like like this podcast. <laughs> Could go forever. Like we could just be talking for like eight hours. There's like four thousand guns in that collection. So <laughs> we're going to go over we, the individual provenance for every gun in the collection. Alleged provenance for a lot alleged of it. provenance. All right. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this kind of walk down memory lane with us. Um, I don't know what Danny's plans are for the 150th of the collection moving forward. Neither does he. What's what's that? said neither does he but like you should think that this should be a year-long extravaganza and i want to do more stuff but we're a little bit limited on what we can do right now and yeah maybe we should make our like i know we talked about something else or i talked to somebody else about something else but like maybe we should make our like next digital symposium like about weird stuff in the winchester collection and bring like jonathan to talk about like the the bull pop and like you know um i don't know some italian to talk about the villa Barossa, someone from like the Beretta collection oh i know that guy uh <laughs> you know but like invite people from like we we should totally do the winchester 150th collection um you know anniversary but like only the weird foreign guns and bring somebody from like italy and by bring i mean like digitally bring someone that can speak english from all those cu countries uh like you know to talk about like what the heck why do we have this i think we've got a dutch gun like a really well-known dutch gun too that we could bring like the national military museum uh there and like i think and then just like make it like so international for like a collection that's considered so american right everybody's like you guys have a lot of lever actions right and we also got a villa yeah uh we got a villa and like in when i was in italy like people were like what 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 the heck and then when i was in italy i so, saw so many villas that i was unimpressed Oh, and I just made the case that they're really rare guns. Come well, they on. are really rare guns, but like literally, like I was at the Beretta collection. I was at the Proof House, um, you know, and it was, it was just like, people were like, oh, here's our villa. And I was like, do they want to, do they want to fly one over on a private jet? Uh, whether two. that is true, whether they would or not is not for public consumption. Actually, there's a lot of red um, tape in Italy, so probs never. I mean, with the exception that like we also couldn't do it. I'm right. positive Italy would not allow such a thing all right well that's it <laughs> that's it i hope you guys enjoyed listening it's a pretty cool anniversary for us and it's cool to think that like i don't know it's it's cool for me to think that this collection is like passed down is now ours to steward so hope you enjoy listening and look out for more events as the year goes along see you